listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So what is going on at home with this winter weather you guys are having? Oh, it was insane. In in Texas, last week, we had about eight days that it was under freezing. So we had a big rainstorm that turned into freezing ice, and all the trees had about two to three inches of ice. It, it, incredible. And then it was followed by several snowstorms on top of that. We lost a lot of, of livestock and game animals, so it was really hard on the farmers and ranchers in Texas, not just the overall human population as well with losing power and water and electricity. Wow. Like I saw some of the pictures, and I think I was in Ohio one time in the wintertime, and they get those, that's part of the country that gets those really bizarre ice storms. And I had never seen that before living in west western canada but it looks like it's like sub-zero temperatures and then somebody's hosing everything down and it's freezing and power lines are built up and trees are covered in it and that's what your pictures look like down in texas my goodness and i mean there's still issues with water um people with the within cities and such that don't have wells that they're having issues with the sanitation elements and they're making people in towns boil water and things like that. So it's just, it's still pretty wild. Wow. And and I saw lots of like kind of efforts sort of out on in the countryside and stuff like people picking up um, native bats, you know, they're uh, this the yes. big campaign on collecting up the you know, sea turtles and stuff sea like turtle. things that, that weren't doing too well with the cold or, or, wouldn't have any any food yet i saw the one where the was the alligators or something in a in a reserve somewhere and they were just doing fine they just stick their snout up out of the ice and then because they're (laughs) reptiles they actually go into a state of suspended animation and they just kind of rode it out but but the things with hair and fur weren't weren't faring so well that's why they're nature's perfect predator yeah unchanged for 100 million years yeah Wow. No, well, I hope, I hope it passes soon. Um, that's probably something that nobody would ever thought to be prepared for. For sure. Wow. Hey everybody. It's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. Uh, this episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is supported by iHunter. iHunter is a fantastic tool to help you navigate your hunting area. Arming you with uh, management unit-specific regulations, showing you your limited entry permit zones, and even a subscription-based feature showing you public and private land, which is incredibly useful. We use it almost every day when we're out hunting. I'd go check them out. And this episode is sponsored by Fisher Peak Brewing Company. Whether you're looking to take that special someone out for a drink or needing a nice cold brew at the end of a long packout, grab a growler, a pint, or a six-pack from these guys. I do notice that there's usually some Fisher Peak beer lurking around the shop whenever I come for a visit there, Dad. So we know they're good. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we all oh, go ahead. No, that's, uh, that's awesome. You, uh, you make me buy the beer and then you drink it all. So, cause you like, you like those dark crafts. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we def- definitely love the beer and the folks down at Fisher Peak Brewery. They've won both BC and Canadian Brewing Awards for their Hell Roaring Scottish Ale, which is very delicious. With 11 handcrafted beers on tap, including rotating seasonal taps, seven beer flavors available in cans, and tap beers available for growler fills, they're, uh, they're the people to go to for beer. So next time you find yourself in need of a cold beverage, go down and see the folks at Fish Peak Brewing Company in Cranbrook, and they'll hook you up with the goods. Absolutely. And tell them you heard about us on the Hunter Conservationist podcast. So that's super, super cool. Yeah. Love my iHunter app, especially that private land subscription layer. Jeez. You know, there's places out there where it's like private land is not marked. You just sort of like using using the app and it's like, oh, there's like a boundary right here, but there's like nothing to to show it. And it's our responsibility to know that. So that is the tool for sure. Um, hey, everybody, we are joined um, today by Britt Longoria. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Other than the ice storm we talked about. <laughs> yes. So, so Britt is from Texas. Uh, you gathered that at the, at the start. Um, they got a ranch there. She has a ranch there that's been cloaked in winter. I had a friend in Houston that uh, I was showing pictures to one year of where we lived here in British Columbia and the lake we lived by was frozen. And when the kids were little, they were out skating on it. And it was just like, it's like you were talking in a different language, like the, the water's frozen and you go out on it. And I remember him telling me, he goes, we have two seasons here in Texas, hot and hotter. <laughs> now you have three. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, now it's mud season now because I'm I'm originally from Maine. So in Maine, you have a proper spring. But in Texas, as you say, you have kind of a cooler weather winter, but then you have just a really, really long summer. And right now I laugh because it's just like in Maine. I mean, everything is mud. It's everything is thawing out and dripping and drenched. The dogs are nasty and it's like you don't even want them inside. <laughs> yeah, the uh all all the northerners <laughs> listen to this are going, yeah, we know, we know that one. Yep. Welcome to the crowd. You know that. <laughs> jump jump on your uh on your couch or into the back of your truck or something like that in the spring. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man. Well, ho- hopefully summer doesn't get you get thrown into a into a drought, so um Britt, you were the recent recipient of the Diana Award from Safari Club International. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. It's a, a huge, huge honor. Yeah, so that's that award recognizes sort of a lifetime achievement um, for Woman Hunter of the Year. It's, uh, it's a very, very important recognition because it encompasses like a lot more than just like your success in a single hunting season. So I think that's, that's pretty fantastic. Thank you. It's about, I've been hunting for about 25 years and I was, was awarded it at um, age 34. So it's, it's been truly a a lifetime, my lifetime of, of hunting. Um, But what's so special about the SCI Diana award is that 
there's also major recognition for philanthropy and for educating the general public of hunting and of sportsmanship and of ethics that we all practice in the field, um, oftentimes very private because we're alone in the woods, but to take those stories and to share them um, with with folks that wouldn't otherwise understand it is a, is definitely a major aspect of the award. Wow. Oh, well, I mean, that's, that's cool that people are, are watching for that and recognizing, you know, that as an important aspect of, of being a hunter. Definitely. Very cool. Um, you know, in the last episode, we had Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins, The Truth About Hunting on, um, and super powerful speaker, um, amazing thinker. I love him because he's got this way of just taking this, this thing, this giant thing that's happening. And he's just like, bam, bam. like in like six words, he's just like, think about he's awesome. this, right? It's, it's great. And the reason we had him on the show was, you know, up here in Canada, it's kind of happening all over the place. It kind of started with, you know, kind of just after the election uh, in the U.S. with the the senator bill in California to black ban black bear hunting kind of things got sort of kicked off almost all over the world and it got kicked off like things here in Canada as well and kind of got onto the whole topic of trophy hunting and that's in the narrative in the media and it's kind of like making you know hunters look bad and stuff and what I always found was is like sort of the African hunting situation which is so different than north america gets pulled in and then talked about in a in sort of a negative light and trying to talk about that in the context of say some, hunting something like black bears or cougars here in british columbia so robbie came on you know a lot to kind of really like provide some insight into that world you know for our our canadian listeners because you know generally our our focus is on canada and so now this is kind of like the 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 bookend I think to that podcast and ha having you on um, as well because of you know what we're going to get into and what happened you know um, the story that you're going to share with us and you know the premise for this episode kind of revolves around stuff that we're seeing almost on a daily basis uh, right now is something in social media around the realm of hunting a hunter something that a hunter posts or whatever that's turning into these kind of big storms, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, sort of thing. And, and, you know, it's getting people set off against each other. It's getting non hunters and hunters and hunters against hunters and stuff. It, it's just creating just some really, you know, a, a real, uh, vortex and, but, but again, it's, it's like the, the podcast, you know, with April Volke, which is where, you know, I met you, we, we talked about, you know, grip and grins and social media, and it's kind of still conversation still coming back to that. And the reason that I wanted, um, you know, to talk more with you is social media is something everybody's doing. Everybody is for not everybody, lots of people, you know, are, are posting and things can happen unexpectedly to somebody and you never know when it could be you. Um, Social media can be pirated. Your accounts can be hacked. My Instagram account's been hacked into. So is my Facebook account. I've lost control of it. I definitely know I have bots 
following me on Instagram, as you probably do too, who, who they are or what they're sent there to listen and watch for, I don't know, but, um, you know, that's, that's happening. Um, so anybody could be thrown into one of these things. Like, you know, I think some people think maybe what they're posting, it's, you know, who cares? I have the right to do it. Or some people are saying, but my accounts are private. I'm only sharing this with your friends. And it's like, man, nothing is private on the internet as, as you know. So none of us are trained for this. None of us are trained to be thrown into something and, and, um, we're emotional. Hunters are emotional. I, I don't think we're all, you know, just objective science. We, we love what we do and we're, we're passionate about that as well. So, so on that, on that premise, tell us your story. My story. You were talking about my yeah. leopard story. Yeah. <laughs> my that, that my one. infamous yeah. leopard. Yeah. <laughs> if not, you don't know the not photo. The, uh, not that I was born on such and such a day. And, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to back up a little bit, I was always very, very private because I work in the environmental field. I work with conservationists and international nonprofits all over the world. And so my consulting was always very neutral that yes, people knew that I was a hunter, but I didn't post any trophy photos, let alone any photos of even hunting related type stuff. I mean, it was, I don't want to say a a closet hunter, but uh, almost, (laughs) I mean, it, it was, it was not a secret, but it was extremely private. It was for me even to the point of putting my name into the Safari Club record book as a number so that I didn't even have a digital profile that linked me to a specific image or a specific animal or a hunt or an outfitter. Um, From that point, I had a hunt for a leopard in Namibia and it happened to be a extremely large leopard. I entered it into the Safari Club International record book with a photo. It's, it's required as part of the, the application. And it went into there and it had my name, Brittany L. So if you Google Brittany L. Leopard, you'll see the photo that I'm talking about. And it's a photo of me holding up this large male leopard. And it's a kind of a a classic trophy photo for cats. You see it often with mountain lions and different large cat species. So there was nothing outrageous or phenomenal or anything that should have triggered anyone beyond that it was a photo, but with it being a leopard, it's a very charismatic, identifiable species. And a troll had stolen the photo from the online record book, which is a private record book for members only. So obviously you can become a member by paying dues and anyone can do that. And if they're looking for something such as an image like this, they can pull it. So again, as you say, even though you assume something's private or not being shared, even on a social media site, if it's online, it's public. 
<laughs> it, it just some someone can find it. So for me, it was overwhelming because it was like, whoa, I I wasn't looking to get likes or get attention or share that I had done this with anyone other than family and friends. And now all of a sudden it's being utilized and still being utilized as a image to promote anti-trophy hunting or anti-safari hunting or anti-hunting in general. So that's kind of the story of that particular image. Wow. How how did you first kind of learn that something was amiss? I had friends uh, sending me WhatsApp from South Africa, and it looked like it generated from some animal rights extremists in South Africa that had that had the image. And so it was making rounds in South Africa, and then it made its rounds through kind of Europe and into Hollywood and then Australia. And so it went around a couple of times and it was like, what the heck is even going on? I mean, it was just insane. Wow. So then what, what kind of ensued after that? Was it just articles or were people showing up on your doorstep? Like what, what was the follow? No, it, because the full name wasn't associated at the time with that image, that there wasn't a direct link to Brittany Longoria, that it was Brittany L. And so it was more of a uproar over the image. And the tagline was, or the hashtag was find this bitch. And it was to find me, to figure out who the heck I was, and they were going to name me and shame me. And I mean, it, it was just incredible. Um, so I had some websites, some of my clients' websites hacked into as far as consulting that I had been working for. Um, I changed my email address. I I had a different Instagram account at the time because it was just family. I mean, it, and it was private. It didn't even have this photo online associated with that account, but I basically stopped using that particular account. And I just was like, oh my gosh, so for, I would say for about a week, I was just overwhelmed and completely bombarded from any digital source. Wow. So, so they did kind of like, I guess, put two and two together and figure out who you were and able to sort of like track down what you did for a living and who your clients were and who you worked for and stuff. So like, I don't know if yeah. that kind of stuff is easy over the internet or if there's people paying like pretty sophisticated money to like get into the the details of zeros and ones in the internet to trace this stuff down. But I mean, that's pretty damn scary, you know? It is scary, but the, the, the thing that I realized, so after the week of being completely overwhelmed by the situation of being scared, being nervous of everything going on was I had an aha moment. And that aha moment was, is that, 
these people are, although they're saying negative things directed towards me, this is not about me. This is about hunters. This is about hunting. And there is a tangible disconnect between an image and an individual when it's used in, as a stereotype like this is. So that's why several months after all this happened, I decided to create my Instagram account, Brit Longoria, to be able to tell my voice, tell or have a voice and tell my story. And with that, I said, okay, wait a second. You all don't know me as an individual. I'm going to tell you my individual story. And if you still want to judge me after it, fine. Then, then you know me better, but you can't say what you're saying based off an image without having the tangibility of the whole entire story behind it. No, that, uh, that's, that totally makes sense, you know, and, and that's one of the things I kind of love about this story and the way you approached it was, you know, the other, the other approach would have been to like lash out, right? Like to, um, you know, start firing back and, you know, if they're saying certain things about you kind of like, you know, boomeranging that those same types of things back, you know, the anti-hunter slurs and slander and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't really serve, you know, it doesn't really accomplish anything. It's sort of like, you know, in politics, when that stuff happens, it just kind of makes like two sides look bad, but, but you took a really different approach, just very like collected, like you really were thinking. And, uh, in that type of a situation, like, I mean, I really admire that. And this is part of what, you know, I want people to kind of like hear this story and, um, cause, cause it was, it was a very different type of response from what, you know, what you see. And I think there was one recently popped up somewhere from a safari hunt somewhere that's like kind of all over the news right now and stuff. And I remember seeing something in one of the articles that one of the graphic pictures that was sort of put up there was done on purpose because the hunter knew it was going to evoke, you know, this type of response. And I was just like, geez, it's, you know, like the rest of us are probably just going like, face, face palm plant, right? Like not again, like just stop, poke, stop poking the line, but you, you didn't do that. Was it, was it just within you to say, no, I wouldn't do that. Or was your husband like, whoa, 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 let's think about this for a second. (laughs) Well, it it was twofold. So that uh, their hatred and what they were doing was not directed at me personally, but at the same time, that one image represents all hunters. So you have two sides of this paradigm that when we post something on there, even if it's our personal harvest field photo, how we choose to do it represents all of us. So as you're saying with this with this South African who wanted to provoke, it doesn't help the hunting industry to do that. What helps is for each of us to tell our individual story because then that becomes relatable. Because when we step back from the stereotypes and personalize what we do is when those bridges are built and those understanding 
conversations actually take place. Right. No, no, very true. Now, when you, so did you, did you get death threats like directly? Oh, yeah. I still, I, I still, you do. still do. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have a little bit more visible profile on Instagram before, you know, than, uh, than what you were saying before when it was, when you were more private about stuff. So I guess, I guess that makes sense. So how, how did that hit you? Like you said there was about a week or so where it was kind of like, was it scary? Were you fearful or did you not want to go out? Like, what is, what does that feel like? I felt tired. I felt from an energetic level, imagine having a person looking at your image from all around the world and projecting hate on it. I I felt that energy of just, just overwhelmed. I wasn't ever scared. I live in a rural community and it's very supportive and it's farming and ranching so that it's not that I'm not in a big metroplex where it's unusual to, to be a hunter. So that side of it was, was fine. But like I said, after, after that week of seeing everything happen was when I started questioning what their hatred was over. And at that point, I understood that they weren't necessarily mad at me, but they were so confused. They were asking why. And they weren't wanting to know about that, yes, it was a a legal hunt and that, yes, it was a scientifically managed population and that it was a permit and it was all, they don't care about the rationality of it, but they wanted to understand why in this day and age would someone travel to go hunt a leopard. And so when I realized that there was a question behind the emotion and behind the hatred, that's when I started to understand what it, what did I have to offer? Why do I hunt? And so it, it made me question myself in order to articulate my own individual narrative. Very interesting. Yeah. That's almost, you're almost operating at the level of kind of like a, you know, a filmmaker, like a Ron Howard or Steven Spielberg or whatever, of <laughs> like really, like really forcing yourself to dig down for that, that story, right? Like, you know, getting some reviews and going back and, and really push, pushing yourself deep to, to think about how to come out and use this tool, this tool of social media to, to tell your story. Um, that's super, a super fascinating approach. Like, again, just like what Robbie Kroger says, I just want you to think (laughs) it's like you're, you're thinking for sure. That's, um, that's pretty cool. So what, what, what have you done differently, doing differently? What's the approach that you're using now with your social media and telling the stories of your hunts? Maybe give us some examples there of like, you know, what, what you're doing that works for you and, and at least feels that you're telling the story, how you want to tell it. Absolutely. The, the biggest thing that I found was, 
stepping away from thinking with my head to thinking with my heart. And there, let me back up. I, I grew up in Maine. We filled the freezer with deer meat. We'd go to deer camp every year. It was, I mean, that was just the way of, of life, just like going to a supermarket. A certain time of the year, that's what you do. That's where you go. And then that's your meat for the rest of the, of the year. And I grew up with a lot of people that hunted for the freezer. I am very blessed to have grown up in a family that afforded and took me as as a woman, as a young girl, hunting all over the world. And there is an interesting difference now as a modern hunter that I did not necessarily understand growing up. It was more of an evolution that, and also with, with this whole leopard process, that with hunting, that there really isn't a reason why we need to. We can go to a supermarket. We can have someone else raise our meat. I mean, that there, there's no reason why we might choose to do that. And this kind of evolution of thinking modified my own personal why. And it it came down to this intrinsic level of being able to connect, not just with what I eat, what I consume, but also with a natural process that we are a part of, that it's a life, death, life cycle. And to be able to function in the capacity where you're involved in that, in a wild place, goes so far beyond filling a freezer or feeding a family. And from what I do on a storytelling basis is that I try to talk more about what goes on in my head when I'm hunting, when I'm in 115 degree heat and I'm walking after a herd of 300 Western Savannah Buffalo in Benin, and I can feel the sweat dripping down my neck and I can hear the buzz of the Mapani flies in my ears and going into the corners of my eyes and up my nose to get moisture and the feel of the grass moving up against my legs. I mean, everything is so intense, even if it's not necessarily the end result of harvesting an actual animal, but the process, the process of hunting, the journey of hunting is so different than what modern humans have to do on a daily basis. And so I try to tell my experiences from a psychological, emotional heart level to illustrate that whether someone is hunting for a Rocky Mountain mule deer or someone's hunting for a leopard, there is a process and that's what joins us as hunters. So oftentimes, as you said at the beginning, that we're, we're seeing so much polarization within the hunting communities, but the emotional aspect of what we do 
is the same, regardless of culture, regardless of what language we speak, of our intention of why we go out into the woods in the first place. And that journey is what I really, really try to emphasize in my storytelling. No, that's, that's, that's interesting. So like, does your, your storytelling like occur over a longer time frame? like for a given hunt, do you start before you go or is this sort of like thought and crafted and then, you know, tell the story afterwards or both? It's, it's all of the above. I mean, mm. there, there can, I mean, I, I do a lot of photography and writing for publications as well as just blogging and my Instagram microblogging essentially. <laughs> and, and so it's, I think it's all of the above, but then there's also a major element of how we take our, our photos. And so what I'm very supportive of is images that tell more than just the final ta-da I did it yeah. right the grip and grin photos yeah that that I I almost feel that those should be a thing of the past because they're not translatable to sharing with the general public it it doesn't those images don't make sense and so I try to bring in more conversational pieces to my field photos. I, I still think we should take field photos because there are times and moments, even if we want to review them just ourselves, just personally. But I think that having those different elements are important, especially if we're going as a, as a community, put them in public places where people that don't understand what the image is can maybe get a little bit deeper story behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, on, on the last episode, Rob, Robbie kind of like challenged, you know, us to, you know, uh, hunters to sort of think that way too, about like what that, what that final outcome of a hunt was like, what, what is that outcome? What is the most important thing? And sort of challenge the notion that like the picture with the animal on the ground is yeah. the, is the, is the end goal. Um, Cause when that's the imagery that's out there, then that's the narrative that's created, right? That that was the purpose. And, and he told a really good story, you know, relating it to like an example of like of an elephant hunt. And he said, rather than like the final picture being um, the picture of the hunter with the tusk or something like that, it's like the final picture is like the, the chief or the leader of the nearby nearby community that talks about what that elephant represented and what that hunt represented and meant sort of thing. And it's like, that's the, he, he says, why not, why not say that? That's, that's was the success of the hunt. Right. So he's, he's very good at challenging us to think that way. And you, you seem to be thinking sort of along that same lines. And I think that's a challenge for people like to maybe be able to kind of dig deep and say like, how do I put an image to this thing that I actually have a very difficult time articulating it? When I hear someone else do it, I go, yeah, that's how I feel. <laughs> but because I, no, I get sure. that, I get that. So it's like, how do you, what, what would you say to people? Like how to, how to dig down and find their meaning and portray that in pictures? 
Well, I mean, at the same time, when you smile over an animal, there are moments in time where that makes absolute sense that, man, I climbed this mountain and I got this incredible sheep and I am just ecstatic, but that doesn't translate. And so as a communicator, we have to understand that it's not the message we understand it's the message the people that are viewing it is going to understand good point so if if you think about that 80% of the population doesn't hunt and i'm not talking about anti hunters but i'm just in in general people you know that they're not going to experience in their lifetime they have no desire but they're probably pretty neutral they're like okay whatever it's not really my thing but you guys do what you do and if we're able to present something in a way that feels neutral, that that at least begins to open conversation. So what what I do for my field photos is that I give my phone or my camera to the professional hunter, to my husband, and I say, can you just take photos while I'm saying my thank yous? And every animal that I connect with, I have my own personal rituals or prayers or meditations or thoughts that I want to express the gratitude of getting me to this point. And before anything else, before anyone else touches it, because I don't want someone else walking up to it and maneuvering it. And da, 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 da. it's like, no, everyone back off. This is my time. I, I need this for me. And it's kind of like a coming down off of this incredible, I don't want to say rush. I don't want to say adrenaline because those are oftentimes positive because there's a lot of times that it's sad or you feel guilty I, I mean I'm it's hard to articulate but it's private oftentimes these moments are private and so by giving the cameras to other people and having the ability to have that private moment allows me to go back and look for the image that best fits the feeling of the hunter of the situation and it's candid and it's real and it's authentic because I, I know that you poked fun at a couple of people that do like the real gratitude you know with the you know chin oh chin the christmas down trees the, <laughs> that was that was funny that was you know and People and probably it, saw that, just, but I, I got my Christmas tree, and then so I, I posed <laughs> with my Christmas tree, and I had, uh, had the uh, stereotype, grip and grin pictures of the Christmas tree. <laughs> that was fun. And it's, but it's true. But I mean, I mean, there are people that can be overly dramatic in a situation, but at the same time, I feel that, that that might be something where, we can start to look at doing more gratitude, more humble, more, you know, not the big cheesy smile and the thumbs up and, you know, stuff like that, that it's because those can translate to others better. Because one of the things that I saw a lot in the comments towards 
towards me in, in the leopard photo was that how can she be smiling? How can she be celebrating? How can she have joy or illustrate joy in a situation of a death? And as hunters, we know that we never take joy in death. Like that, that is, is so far from anything that we feel. We feel joy in getting to the top of the mountain or taking an incredible shot or having something shared with family and friends. Like we have camaraderie and we smile because of those elements, but I don't, I don't know of any hunter that would smile because of the death and that's how it translates. So I would say that there are beautiful images of, you know, on my honor the hunt uh, page, I, I take a look at what people are doing as far as alternatives to the classic grip and grin trophy photo. I look for images that share the hunted, the animal, the actual hunt, the journey, and the hunter to have a human element in it. Because a lot of a lot of people don't, you know, don't want to take a photo with the animal that they they maybe just taken a photo of the dead animal that they've just harvested. But I think that it's it's important to show the human element in it. That it that this isn't just a natural death that I participated I chose to do this and getting into that more of that emotional side of things whether it's in our stories how we talk about what we do or our images I think it is going to be more and more opening for people to better understand all these different individual reasons of why we hunt yeah yeah I think it was um in his book, um, Meditations on Hunting by Jose Ortega Igase, where he, he said something along the lines, and I think this resonates with everybody, that, that, that the hunt, because he differentiates between hunting and the hunt, and he, but he defines the hunt as the rituals and traditions that an individual seeks or experiences while hunting and that a hunt doesn't always have to end in harvesting of an animal in order to be successful. So like you said, deer camp going out there, that's a ritual. It was all these things happened. It was the hunt. You were hunting a deer, but you didn't have to get a deer to experience the hunt. And that, that resonates with a lot of hunters that's inside that, that drives 99% of the hunters are out there. But like you're saying one or two pictures improperly placed is not communicating that message to this audience that's watching us. And maybe that's, I, I don't know, maybe that's one of the pieces that people are missing They're They're seeing part of this conversation that, like we're having there about, about, well, they should hide everything. And it's like, no, it's, it's not about that. I have a right to do these things. Yes. But Robbie says, you need to think about that, right? Is it helping hunting or hurting hunting? Like, I love that. Um, but it's being able to tell that story of the hunt so that someone else that is watching when you decide to go public with it 
can understand that story. Because if you just posted a picture and say, you know, or sent it to me and said, hey, Mark, I got this doll sheep in Alaska. And I'm like, I'm with you. I, kn- I know what that took. Like, I, I was there. Mm-hmm. I, could, I, could, I could experience that whole thing. But like what you're saying is nobody else can. <laughs> but everybody else is seeing this. So that becomes, would you call it a responsibility to, to tell oh, a better story? Like, like I said, that, I mean, that, that when we post a photo, we're representing everyone in the hunting community, but th- this isn't just about individuals. Just like when someone's hating on me as an individual, they're not mm. hating on Britt Longoria. They're hating on Mark Hall. I mean, they're hating on <laughs> anyone, on Curtis. I mean, this is all, it's about, a collective stereotype. And so right now I'm working on my my PhD and I'm looking at strategic communication. And one of the themes that I'm investigating and researching more is that we have lost our ability to make hunting sacred. And if we look historically at traditional cultures, indigenous cultures, Inuits, the Baca pygmies and, you know, the forest and I mean, whatever true indigenous culture, they have also a storytelling culture. And within their storytelling, they relay ethics and morals, codes of conduct, character within within their their culture within their tribe within their community and interestingly when talking with non-hunters if i am to say do you have a problem with a native american hunting a buffalo or an inuit hunting seals and you often no well it's part of their culture is 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 very often something that i hear and so when they say, well, you know, I'm a Caucasian white woman. Why is it not part of my culture? Why, why is it? And I, I bring it down to storytelling that hunters and modern humans have lost their ability to tell their stories. And in losing our ability to craft a narrative around what we do, we have lost the ability to illustrate and to demonstrate to others what we do is sacred and is part of who we are. And I hope that with my research, my research and my writing and what I do will help bring those types of narratives into digital media and into conversations that are around campfires now, not just in the past or in ancient times. That is, that is super fascinating. Um, and, and this is some of the things I wanted to touch on because I actually like teach workshops on the power of storytelling and it's a super fascinating, you know, area of human communication that I think I've got to start looking for ways uh, and people that'll help um, to, to start teaching this because yes, it has been mm-hmm. lost. And there's a really powerful storyteller from the UK. Uh, he's been on TEDx, uh, 
David J.P. Phillips, um, really powerful um, person. It's it's worth you know reading his stuff, but he teaches us what storytelling is. And one of the you know one of the things I really liked is is he said language as a form of communication evolved in humans about a hundred thousand years ago. It was our f- so storytelling was our very first form of communication. Written text only came about thirty five hundred years ago, and then he jokes like. PowerPoint came 30 years ago. So he says, what do you think our brains are hardwired for? But you could probably say the same thing about Instagram. It's only showed up in the last five years. So what do you think our brains hardwired for? And the human brain is hardwired for story. And what are the elements of story? And the elements of story are a character who you get to know, who goes on a journey And the most powerful stories that resonate with people is when your character goes into a low point, is conflicted with something, finds a way up and out of that because of a moral or a lesson or something that then gets communicated Mm -hmm. at the end of the story. And that's a really key part, which one pitcher, you know, can't, can't do that. And so I've been thinking a lot about this, like even non hunters looking at what we're doing, their brains are hardwired for story. And when you, let's just say you were to, as a hunter, they were following you and you posted a series of, this was day one. I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. They follow you. They start following you because you're crafting the art of a story and suspense and following along to see what happens next is creating dopamine levels, increasing dopamine, which is the true, one of the true gifts of storytelling, right? And uh, so there's all these elements that I don't think hunters know about. They don't know how to harness, but it's, uh, it's something I think you understand because you're going to a higher well, level I'm, I'm- of... I'm learning it. And I mean, and like you're, like you're saying, it's like, there are teachers just like there are painting instructors. There are limited oral teachers on how to craft this. And so I think that with what you're doing and what you're saying is that if we can illustrate the template and allow us as a community to better understand how it translates, then it opens so many doors. And one of the things that I've been researching is is the different theories of communication. And one of the major elements is that this is a, a, a moral conflict that just like so many other polarizing elements that in our in our society today, that one side says this is immoral and the other side says this is moral and they're talking up and down and back and forth but they're never speaking the same language and if we can get onto the same language and i personally think that the same language is speaking from the heart speaking from the emotion telling someone why you're doing something rather than trying to justify why it's moral or why it's not moral. And as you say, one of the very interesting things with oral cultures and oral traditions is that there is a character. It's not 
Britt Longoria goes to Africa and shoots a leopard, blah, 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 blah. It's that there is a hunter that grew up in the north woods of Maine that understood that filling the freezer was not the main reason to go hunting for her as an individual. And so she went and sought out wild places and wild experiences and adventures and different cultures in order to satisfy her desire and need to experience hunting in different ways. Blah, 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 blah. You know, so it's, so it's changing that narrative away from self. And at the same time, like we were saying earlier, that those images represent a community. They represent a stereotype. And when we are able to take that character and rebuild the narrative, take back the narrative, then we are in an extremely powerful position to create understanding. And it's not understanding where there is an, a need for endorsement. They don't ever have to agree with hunting. They might never go hunting. They might continue to buy their meat and their leather products and think that hunters are just a whole different species unto themselves. But there needs to be an empathy. And with understanding within these moral conflicts that they don't have to agree that it's moral or immoral, but that they have that ability to empathize and say, okay, I understand why you do it. It might not be why I do it, but that's, that's when the, you know, heavens open up and we go, ah, (laughs) (laughs) they they get it. They get it. No, that's, uh, that is a really important part of storytelling that I teach is the power of the storyteller in being able to create uh, or evoke emotions in the listeners that make them bond and trust you. And that is done through empathy. And when you empathize with someone, like you said, you don't have to agree with them, but you can empathize with them that, that creates or stimulates oxytocin in our blood and it it's it's a skill of a good storyteller to be able to create empathy for your character if you happen to be the character that makes the listeners start to bond and trust with you because they have some empathy for you you're actually really striking at how the listener's brain actually operates if you tell your story effectively, right? So being able to get someone to trust you doesn't mean they have to, like you said, accept what we do as hunters. But if if they can go, okay, from your perspective, like I get it. And for me personally, one of the reasons I think this conversation is so important and these messages that you're talking about is at some point we have to be able to put these pursuits aside and these moral ethical differences and solve some really significant wildlife conservation problems. But I keep see this coming up. I keep see this coming up. Yes, we have to do this. Okay. Just if you guys would just stop trophy hunting, then we could fix these conservation problems. And I'm like, you know, that's really not an issue to wildlife conservation, but land conversion and habitat loss is why don't we just straight to it and when we have the time and the luxury to have these philosophical discussions, because everything's running properly, then let's have them. Um, so I, I, I disagree a lot with some of the, 
the positions out there about what's the most important thing to be talking about right now. But, and, and I think that's where storytelling, the things that you're doing become a bridge to those bigger things that we care about and that you care about, which is conservation, right? So you guys. Yeah. If we can't get humans together on those things, then we're not going to have some stuff to argue about in a couple of decades. So, wow. Absolutely. No, what a, uh, I really, I really do admire the, your sort of approach to all of this. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. And like I said, it's been, it's an evolution. It's, it's a, uh, it's an uh, unfolding path. I, I didn't set out <laughs> to, to do this or to share my hunting side of things or anything. And it's just kind of fallen in my lap. And I, I feel that there is something greater and bigger that I can contribute. And I, and I hope, I hope that I do. So looking back on that, do you, if you had a magic wand, would you reverse time and make it go away? Or are you thankful in a way that it happened and it's pushed you to somewhere that you might not have got to? Oh, 100%. I'm, I'm 100% thankful that it happened because I wouldn't have sat there for a week trying to figure out why people are so angry. I, I, I couldn't have imagined that that it's kind of like COVID, like, how did this even happen? <laughs> Where did this even come from? And it, it changes your world. It changes the way you think, the way you interact, the way that you perceive what you're doing. And it's an exciting journey. And, and to be able to go and re redo this, I wouldn't have wanted it to happen any other way because it was a baptism by fire. And what's really funny is that that those poor people that went onto the website and stole the image had no idea who they were doing it to, but I'm I'm sure they probably would have picked someone different if they had known that I was, you know, lived in Africa for my young adult life and worked in hunting with hunting companies and game capture companies and consulted all over the world for environmental conservation and anti-poaching nonprofits. And now I'm going to get a PhD to just be able to fine tune what I think. It's like, Hey, they should, they shouldn't have picked my photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, I mean, that is a, that is a great way to look at it. And, and it's like, I, I think that's a really good message because it's really uncomfortable right now in a lot of countries of the world being a hunter. There's a lot of things happening, a lot of things coming at us where people are, are hunters are almost sort of like back on their heels a little bit. I've like been set back. Like Robbie said, there's probably maybe a tendency to just want to go back in the closet and close the doors and hopefully it all goes away. But I'm, I'm more with you. I think I think the uncomfortableness is good. I think the confrontation to a point um, is good. I think some people that are against what we do need to get a control of how they package the way they're addressing some of this stuff, which I think is, is inappropriate. Um, but I think I, I see it as a good thing as well. And it's sort of like, if we harness this right, 
in five years and 10 years from now, they're going to be like that backfired on us. There are more people hunting. There's more people interested in it for food. It's a bigger part of the economy. Wildlife populations are doing better because they stood up. We actually got them fired up rather than backing down and politicians buying into these narratives and putting import bans on on the stuff that you want to bring back into the country. They're going to kind of go, whoops. And I love that because I think we can do that. We can get there as a hunting community and take stories like yours uh, and experiences of others and say, let's, let's get this fired up and reflect, see what it's taught us strategize and then tactically start delivering on a new way of doing business. So it's, you've spent a lot of time in reflection, haven't you thinking about things? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's super important uh, as well. So, cause you got to dig deep. Wow. Well, Thanks be, so much for, be, well, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I was just going to say that to, to be a hunter that you have, you again you have that responsibility you have to figure out why you do it that why so if robbie's if robbie's setting setting you up to to do some some critical thinking i'm i'm right there with him i'd say figure out your why yeah absolutely and it'll be different for everybody but i think the the important part is is when it's authentic and real and from the heart, like you said, that the common threads about what hunting means locally, regionally, geographically, internationally, uh, the rest of the world is going to piece that picture together and understand it all better. Probably help us understand as well. Cause I don't think we all understand the nuances. So, um, yeah, it's, I guess, embrace, Embrace the uncomfortableness, hunters. Yes. Just That's a great, great tagline. Don't, don't do things to make it more uncomfortable for all of us or yourself. <laughs> but like, just there, there are some lessons already out there that sort of should be the, yeah. okay, we don't feel sorry for you because you should have known about that, right? Absolutely. But some of us are going to have to experiment and some of it's going to work, some of it's not. So. It's got to be pioneers in this new, new modern world of hunting as well. You're definitely one of them. I see that as, as one of them. So, well, well, thank you. Thanks so much for sharing your story. It was definitely like a personal one, um, for sure. Something sort of uncomfortable and bad. And I mean, all over internationally, you know, so I really thank you for sharing that with us. And, and I think we're all better because of it. We kind of understand maybe we see ourselves in there. Maybe some, some ways to prevent that from happening. Cause yeah, it reflects on everybody. So there is a responsibility there. Thanks, Britt. Yeah. Thanks. My fantastic. pleasure, Mark. Great conversation. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, so you're probably thinking how you guys can help us out at the Hunter Conservationist. Well, if you head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really does help us out, and we really appreciate your support with that. We would also like to thank iHunter for being an episode supporter. 
Uh, we feel it's a tool that every hunter should be carrying with them, especially combined with the public and private land subscription. It's really cool. Uh, you should go check these guys out. And once again, we would like to thank the folks down at Fisher Peak Brewing Company for sponsoring this episode. Handcrafted, award-winning, local BC beer. It doesn't really get much better than that. They've got your beer needs covered for any occasion. Date night, covered. Day on the river, covered. Cold beer on top of a mountain, well, they got you covered there too. Uh, it's great beer. It's a great atmosphere. For all you folks living in or passing through Cranbrook, make sure you head down and check them out. Your inner beer lover will thank you greatly. Now, that's awesome. And as you all heard, there's Fisher Peak beer in my fridge that Curtis drinks when he comes over. Um, and lastly, just... Uh, Keeping you all on top, uh, the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is a supporting member of the North American Non-Lead Partnership, which is a hunter-led uh, effort to increase the voluntary use of non-lead ammunition to mitigate the off impacts that can happen from when your bullet leaves the end of your barrel. So I'm stocking up and switching over to non-lead turkey loads for this spring. So if you want to learn more about uh, the initiative and some of the things around non-lead alternatives, especially debunking some of the myths, go to the nonleadpartnership.org. There you go. Thanks again, Britt, and uh, hope you get out of the deep freeze in Texas soon. Thank you so much. <laughs> and. Happy hunting. Look forward to seeing your stories and learning from how you're communicating that. Thank let, you. let folks know where they can find you again on social media. At Britt Longoria, B-R-I-T-T-L-O-N-G-O-R-I-A. Fantastic. Follow <laughs> along on the story, the character, and the journey Britt goes on. All right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode.